This 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 Let's be honest. Talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world, but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Welcome, everybody. This is Tactical Faith. I'm Matt Burford. Thank you for coming along again and listening to our podcast, especially those in the state of Alabama whom we serve. And it's our it's actually our calling. And we're so blessed to serve tonight. We have or today we have a full house in the Tactical Faith kind of uh, basement or war room, whatever it is that we call it. War room is probably a little too violent now, right? We're not allowed to call it, <laughs> it the war yeah, room anymore. That might be a problem. Yeah. And in fact, um, but I still like it. I enjoy having a lot of people in the basement, but I really enjoy, Shannon, uh, having your wife here. Not only does she smell better and she's prettier <laughs> to look at um, from my point of view than you all the time. Amen. Or I'll anybody else that we have. Yeah. And in fact, we even have a missionary from Japan. His name is Mark Busby. Hello, Mark. Hey. And I look better and smell better too, right? Not really. Okay. <laughs> uh, but you, you, so you've been in Japan for 25 years. 28. 28 years. Wow. Uh, from Sand Mountain, Alabama, is married to a very nice, beautiful woman from uh, Japan. Uh, has two wonderful little kids, but we'll let him do his own thing. Today, we have a, a really neat opportunity to talk to who, Shannon? Amy Bird. Tell us a little bit about Amy Bird. Well, Amy Bird is part of the. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, Amy. I'm going to mess this up right on the on the outset. The yes. Evangelical Confessing Church the Alliance. Alliance. Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and you guys do a yes. podcast called Mortification of Spin, of which I'm very familiar with, and mm-hmm. I'd like for our listeners to get familiar with that too, because you and Carl Truman and the uh, the pastor who's also on that podcast, I can't remember Todd his Pruitt. name. Todd, Todd Pruitt. Todd Pruitt. Okay, yeah, yeah. You guys have great camaraderie, have a lot of good things to say. Um, but you you came up on my radar whenever I started. Uh, well, the first thing was Joshua Harris, uh, the, uh, the recent uh, author for, who wrote uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye or something like that. And your your compatriot Carl Truman had uh, had written an article about it, and from that I got introduced to the mortification of spin, and then found your blog, Housewife Theologian, and then noticed that you had a good bit written on gender, and mm-hmm. uh, but I could also see that you were coming from a pretty solid place um, as mm-hmm. a Christian and uh one that i felt like was orthodox in in the little o sense and that um even (laughs) though you know i could it didn't take it i did not know this going into it what exactly the alliance of evangelical uh christian or uh, evangelical church is or i still don't really know maybe you could just start out with you know why why are you guys doing a podcast that is specifically trying to uplift this this alliance and you can just give us a snapshot of that if you don't right mind. well carl has 
Kyle Truman has been writing for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and, and, and doing many things for them um, for, for a long time. And um, he came up with the idea to get together and do this podcast that the Alliance would sponsor. Um, kind of, he referred to it as the White Horse Inn Without the Lawyers, which is another <laughs> is a very good reformed podcast, but it's, you know, very well polished and proper and um, well, Carl likes to have a little bit of an edge, and uh, I like know, you wanted... guys better than the White Horse. I think y'all are doing a better job just overall. <laughs> well, I really appreciate the work over at White Horse Inn, but yeah, we wanted to have just a little bit more, um, or he his vision was to have a little bit more of an edge to it, to ask some of those questions and talk about some of those things that aren't talked about a lot in the world of what he calls big Eva, big evangelicalism. Um, because, you know, you have to be careful what you say a lot of the time. And, you know, we don't want to be uh, mean, but we're a little more amateur, I guess you could say. And the title of the podcast is called The Mortification of Sin. Um, and it's, you know, meant to do that. It's meant to kind of look with a little bit more uh, discernment and critical eye into a lot of the things that are going on within the evangelical movement. So... Um, we do a lot of that. We also do a lot of um, interviews with authors, though, because uh, we love to promote good books and, and good theology and critical thinkers. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love the title. Um, I really wish you guys hadn't <laughs> come up with it because I would like to name our podcast Mortification of Spin just because, I mean, you get so much spin now, and you don't you don't want to say no spin zone because then people – have got this one thing that, that, that yeah. they think about you like, but if you say mortification of spin, I mean, it sounds kind of theological, but you know, you kind of put your, put your flag in the sand mm-hmm. at the same time. Now I noticed right. that, uh, some of your, some, Carl and Todd kind of, kind of jab at you sometimes as being a little bit of a <laughs> feminist in their group. Right. And, uh, they so, do. yeah. So, so what, so I, I mean, I've, I've read a little bit of, of your thoughts about, complementarianism which is not not something that uh i've invested a lot of time in but you know why what what makes you a little bit different within your your denomination or your your kind of group that that they would kind of uh put that label on you yeah i guess you could call me a a critical voice within my own circles um not particularly my denomination but just uh, reformed-ish evangelical Christianity as a whole. Um, you know, I'm 43 years old, but I married at 21, really young. And, you know, that's when I was really trying to figure out what I believed and why I believed it kind of thing. And I wanted to be more serious. My husband and I, as we were looking for a church, and um, I embraced this whole biblical manhood and womanhood movement that was, you know, just coming out in the late 80s, I guess. And so this was around... I got married in 1997. So they had good, uh, the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood had a good bit of resources out by this time. Um, They were interviewed a lot on Christian radio. And, you know, I just really wanted to be a good Christian wife. So, oh, this is what I'm supposed to read. This is who I'm supposed to listen to. Um, Some of the leaders in in that movement have been very helpful for me in other areas. So I, I kind of embraced their writing uncritically. Even though I noticed I had some issues with some of it, but I thought maybe it was because, you know, I was young and immature and had simple proclivities. Um, but as I have now been an author 
uh, within conservative Christianity and interacting with some of this material more, um, I've noticed some real, real problems with it. And um, I've seen how it, you know, ruins marriages and people. And so I see how um, damaging the teaching is as well. So I, I started out with my first book just wanting to write about, um, to really motivate women that we are theologians too. And, you know, are we good ones or poor ones is the question because everybody has some sort of knowledge of who God is. And so that we should take that serious and that we should be just as involved in uh, learning and growing and investing in um, the word of God and what we know and sharing that with others as the men in our church. Um, and speaking as a lay woman, I thought, you know, this was you know, totally within my parameters to do. And at first I was very encouraged for my writing in that. And I was even invited to, to write for uh, even the blog, the women's blog, I should say, over at um, CBMW. And, um, but then I started noticing that there's kind of, there's kind of a limit to how much a woman can share and how much a woman can communicate, even as, you know, within the lay circles. Um, but this whole complementarian framework isn't only about ordination. Um, and uh, me and some other women who are asking questions and kind of trying to learn more, we found a serious doctrinal error within the movement of biblical manhood and womanhood. And um, that was teaching an ontological eternal subordination of the son in his essence to oh, the father boy, eternally. Here we go. I, yeah, I, yeah so that, this is a big apologetic kind of uh, theological. Uh, given, right. Yeah, so and, what, yeah, go ahead. Well, that teaching, you know, to boil it down, was being used to teach an ontological subordination of all women to all men. And so we saw, like, how this was the root of a lot of this teaching. And it, it really broke down how, you know, they, they view women, obviously, and then and a lot of it was within a framework of roles, what they call gender roles. Mm -hmm. And um, those are ontological, and um, it's all about authority and submission. So, you know, a lot of my continued writing then began to examine this a little bit more and also just um, to challenge it, of course, and then also to examine what these teachings are on gender roles. I mean, really have to go back to, to metaphysics and a whole bunch of other stuff yeah. um, because of... You know, maybe the conservative, conservative church has, in their hope to combat the progressive teaching in our secular culture with the sexual revolution, um, maybe we've also been using secular language as well. So yeah. that's what a lot of my writing has been about. Yeah, I remember, um, oh, you, you guys interviewed the, uh, the Catholic lady not too long ago. She was, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. it was, it was concerning, yeah, concerning, uh, her fight with, uh, some of those same gender, I mean, more extreme gender roles. So that's where, that's where we get to jump the shark here, where like when most people think that, um, maybe, maybe just six years ago, the, us talking about gender roles in the church would be exclusively about the kind of things that you're talking about, which is preeminently the thing that, that I was, that kind of perked my ears up about, about your perspective. But all of a sudden, just in the last few years, in the last maybe even six months, this gender 
uh, gender has taken on this whole new um, uh, face in the public square. I mean, it's been percolating for Mm -hmm. a long time, obviously, probably for about 20 years or so, you know, but now it's, it's at the forefront of, of people's ideas now. Um, but before I get into that, so you have a book coming out, um, called recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood. So I guess this is, this is kind of, this is everything that you've been talking about, right? This is this, these are the kind Mm -hmm. of things that you're going to be tackling in this book, right? Well, yeah, I mean, um, so when the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood kind of launched, they also launched a, a, a big book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And so this was the answer for, for the church um, against the sexual revolution and what we need to be thinking about men and women. And um, so that's, you know, the big book I bought in <laughs> my marriage. And um, now I've had to do a lot of recovering from what I've learned in that book, in the teaching in that book. And so what I really wanted to write about with this book was um, discipleship and for men and women in the church and how we communicate to one another and commune with one another. Um, you know, I believe in the communion of the saints <laughs> as we confess with the Apostles' Creed. And uh, that's what I wanted to write about, but I found there were a lot of roadblocks that I had to address first. So I, I did have to have a more direct and, and critical voice before I can even reveal then a much greater, um, what I would say, biblical um, picture of man and woman create, created by God and, and what our aim is, which is not biblical manhood and womanhood, but eternal communion together with the triune God. So um, I wrote the book to present an alternative to all the resources that are marketed on biblical manhood and, and womanhood today. Yeah. And I wanted to... Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just, I, I, reading, reading the, the, uh, the excerpt on it, you know, I noticed where mm-hmm. you kind of take this idea, like uh, you see them all over the place. And I think this is more of a marketing ploy than it is like a really, I mean, of course the marketing has got some kind of basis right. and some goofy kind of marketing philosophy or whatever, but you know, you've got all of these like female study Bibles and then you've got, you know, just these regular study Bibles, but then you've got these mm-hmm. female study Bibles and it's like, why do you have a, why do you have to have a female study Bible? You know, is it, right. is it just because it's pink? Is it, is there's not anything mm-hmm. in there that I can glean out of it? Um, so I, I thought that that was interesting that, that you kind of brought that out to the forefront. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, what, what I say with that is, I mean, the radical biblical feminists will say that the Bible is a patriarchal construction put together by the most powerful men, right? And uh, we balk at such an accusation. However, when we when we market to women with things like uh, women's study Bibles and all of our women's perspective on every little doctrine that we want to teach for women, um, aren't we inevitably spending that exact same message that the Bible is so male-focused that uh, women need our own version to be able to relate to it. So I really want, you know, spend part one of the book, the first three chapters, just showing the function of the feminine voice in scripture and how there's a co-activity there and, and how often the, the female voice tells the story behind the story and makes uh, visible the invisible. Well, it's one of the things that I've really loved about uh 
I think it's Craig Keener is the first person that I heard talk about this, but the idea that um that uh, Luke on on uh, his uh, his journeys with the Apostle Paul whenever they came back through Jerusalem whenever the original disciples had aged and probably a lot of them had died off that that Luke had like that Luke was written from this kind of overwhelmingly feminine uh, perspective mm-hmm. right and so you get that voice that Luke's coming in and possibly interviewing and talking to a lot of the original female disciples and that's why yeah. you get these like these these tiny little discrepancies between you know uh matthew and luke and other places like that um so uh yeah, yeah it's pretty bold too because we see from that that women too were traitors of the faith they were handing down the tradition of the faith luke is going to i mean account of the incarnation we get it we get this picture in the beginning of luke of of two pregnant women mary and elizabeth and, and we hear the story through their eyes and you know how did he get that information i'm sure that he heard it from the women so it's you know it's interesting to consider how these interviews were conducted how the stories were passed down things like that women very much were part of the active traditioning that um, lands into the canon of scripture yeah i think so uh let me see what what was that? i i thought maybe matt had something that he wanted to say for a second cause... well i just i know from the old testament that wisdom you know because that's where i do most of my study is the wisdom literature and uh, mm-hmm. the idea of wisdom and apologetics is really fascinating for me but to understand first and foremost that wisdom is seen i mean the voices of a it's a feminine it's a, it's a woman wisdom mm-hmm. is a woman and how how that was so important to the Jewish world that wisdom actually be feminine, and you have wisdom, mm-hmm. you have wisdom and folly, both women, right. in Proverbs. So, and they're almost identical in their calling. They're both calling mm-hmm. people, but one's to death and one's to life. Mm-hmm. And it's understood right. that it's the fear of the Lord and humility that n- allow you to discern which from which, because they're both at the gate calling. So, my question to you is then. Just a basic question, because I, I mean, Shannon set this up, and uh, even though I listen to you, I don't do a lot of work in this. What are mm-hmm. what are roles to be played for women and men in in church? Do you see there being roles in church for women and men? Well, I kind of challenge that word "roles" because it's a word that um, CBMW has capitalized on in their teaching and in their Danvers statement and all of all their teaching, really. And it's a word that comes from the theater and it means to play a part but they use the word role as if it's um, ontological as it's part of our being sure um so that you know all men then have this role to lead and and even in their definition of manhood and womanhood you see um at the heart of mature masculinity is the sense of benevolent responsibility to lead provide for and protect women and for for mature femininity, it's a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men. So there's nothing that's actually um, feminine about our contribution. We're more parasitic to um, affirming masculinity. We're to look for leaders. And they use this word role a lot when they teach this. Mm-hmm. So um, I kind of shy away like the word itself has a function you know we do play different you know parts sometimes that are temporary um 
but they attach like authority to like the role of the man, which is a permanent thing. So um, that's something that I kind of shy away from using is male roles and female roles in the church. Um, now I'm in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and we uphold uh, ordination for few qualified males, right? Sure. And that that means that you know most men also are not ordained in the church. Most men are laymen, and so I write a lot of, about what what does a disciple do? What can a disciple do? Is it different for a, a woman than it is for a man? And um, and that's what I write a lot about in the book as well. Um, and I don't see that we play roles. I do see that, that there are distinctions between men and women. I'm a sister in Christ. Um, you're a, a brother in Christ. And that's going to uh, affect some ways that we relate and minister to one another and things like that. And I think it's a very helpful category, one that Paul uses in addressing the church more than any other metaphor. Um, he uses brother and sister language, which I think teaches us a lot about how we're to, to view and treat one another. But, um, you know, we see even with uh, Mary and Martha, that, that story that people love to tell, um, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet as a disciple. She's in the inner circle right there. That's what's so shocking um, to Martha and probably embarrassing in some ways. I mean, here Mar Martha maybe thought she was a liberal woman by inviting Jesus into her home. But um, here's Mary, like, just thinking right into the deep end. And, you know, what a disciple of a rabbi did was learn to teach. And so when Jesus tells Martha that Mary's doing the one necessary thing, what is he saying there? Sure. But there again, so, though, there again, though, so that's where this kind of stuff sneaks into even hermeneutics and how we interpret that story. Because in my, mm -hmm. my, you know, I've done this sermon before where I'm treating, I get this from G. Campbell Morgan in that great physician book. I have to be careful because my entire life, the only time I've ever heard that story of Mary Martha was in the context of Woman's Day, right? Where a woman either is a Mary or she's a Martha, right? And right, Martha, right, right. Martha is never seen as the good position to be in. You want to be Mary mm -hmm. women. You want to be Mary instead of seeing them as two individuals. Because if you see them as two individuals, right. you get a whole different picture. Because Martha, if you notice, they put a little bitty thing right after the story where it says Martha served. So in other words, mm -hmm. what, what had happened there as a person was she was reclaimed and she never stopped serving. She served, mm -hmm. she served in context to her Lord in a new way. Right. But see, now I'm with you on that because, because it even re thinking about roles and gender roles that way, you're only going to hear stories in certain times in certain contexts and you don't get to interact with those characters individually right. and universally and that's always mm -hmm. bothered me that mary and martha is oh, only me too. you know i yeah instead and later of, later we see martha you know, giving such a clear confession of who jesus is exactly to him when he's coming after lazarus dies and and she confronts him well we um, so, we do ourselves a disservice as christians when we don't meet them as people now i think there is right. something to meeting them as women 
But I, I'm all on board with because you're as making disciples. me yeah as disciples as as women disciples whatever that is. But uh -huh. meeting them individually. Right. You, so G. Campbell Morgan. I don't know if you ever read the Great Physician, but he makes a big moment in the very beginning of the book where he says Jesus had this. You look at every encounter that Jesus had in the New Testament. He dealt with people universally as man as ma mankind, but individually right. as crafted uniquely by God. So is yeah. there a way where we can universally see somebody as a woman, but uniquely made as, as unique as a fingerprint? Yeah, that's something I write about a good bit in that book because, um, yes, I am a woman. Everything I do then is feminine. I don't need to try to act like a woman. I already am a woman. Mm -hmm. But I'm also a unique individual. And so we all have unique contributions even within, you know, the different circumstances that we have in our lives as men and as women. So my big teaching is, yes, please, let's not overgeneralize. Let's not gender, you know, put every teaching and scripture under gender. And what I was getting at uh, when I was talking about disciples end up teaching is that that's what we learn to do is to, so that we can communicate to others with the goal of communing with one another. So when we read scripture verses, um, such as Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Um, that's not a gendered verse. Or Hebrews 5.12, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. That's a sermon letter to a whole congregation. Again, not gendered. Um, when we're told in Romans that we have different gifts, if prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it to serve. If teaching, and teaching. If exhorting, and exhortation. And, and so on. That's for men and women. Um, but desire the greater gift. First Corinthians 12, 31. Is that only for men? No. So what I'm getting at then is as brothers and sisters, as lay people and disciples, we have a responsibility to one another in the church in all of these ways to grow in our knowledge of God and to share who he is and to communicate that well and to pass that faith down. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're all looking at my yeah, wife yeah. as this like, you know, I've like done too good of a job in putting her in her role as a, <laughs> as a wife and to be silent when, you know. Well, you know, well what, what do you have to say, Angela? Do you have anything to say? Well, I just, you know, obviously there's a clear theme with the titles of your books, Housewife Theologian and No Little Women and Why Can't We Be Friends? So I, I'm wondering either, like, why is this topic so dear to your heart? Is this mm -hmm. something that you felt, you know, when you were a young Christian that you were frustrated with being excluded from men's studies or um, do you feel that the church has kind of, um, you know, yeah, that's failed a good because in that I area in the past? To be like, yeah, I never wanted to be that person who, like, talked about gender. <laughs> I didn't grow up feeling that way at all or stifled in that way in my home. And um, early on, uh, as my husband and I joined the church, I was asked to teach a women's Bible study. I really didn't know a lot. Um, I didn't feel like I was in the I was in the situation where I needed to be learning, and um, and so you know I asked my pastor, "Can you help me then?" Because I I really feel like I need to be led, and um, so he gave me a systematic theology book, which was the first time I'd ever like known of such a thing. I thought it was amazing, and 
um, I was loving reading it. And the group of women in my Bible study, you know, they all wanted to learn and it was wonderful. And, and then I, I would go to my pastor with questions and it was kind of like one of those, um, what do you call those seeker friendly churches at the time? It was like during that movement. And so when I start asking some pretty deep theological questions that were coming up in the Bible study, um, you know, it wasn't just me. It was, you know, these women were smart women and had good questions. Um, he kind of laughed at me um, really awkwardly and gave me, you know, in short, basically what he said was, you know, this is a women's Bible study. Why are you guys wearing your pretty little faces over this? No. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. And so that was my first, like, my first um, encounter with that kind of thinking. And I thought, and this was a Baptist church. We started off at a Baptist church. And, um, but, you know, I thought, well, then surely when we, we moved to a Presbyterian church that, you know, the women would be invested in more there. And, mm-hmm. you know, they have old Christian education maybe a little more in some ways in the Reformed faith. And, um, and I found the same kind of um, attitudes there. So with my writing, I wanted to um, encourage women because I, when we moved away and we changed churches, it was also a, a different group of women, a different area to where um, a lot of people went to church in that area, but it was very socially Christian and um, theologically thin. Mm. And so um, I was really trying to kind of offer a resource to help women see how what they know about God is very practical in their everyday life. Um, and so that was kind of encouraging. But then I, I came across, then I began getting speaking engagements and asking me to do a podcast and things like this. And so I'm kind of in the world a little bit more that I didn't really, you know, ask to be in, but here I am and I have these opportunities. And so why not? And um, then I found that, you know, I was treated differently in, in ways like once I found myself, I talk about, and why can't we be friends? I found myself having to walk in a dark alley in the rain several blocks in a sketchy neighborhood in the city when I could have been offered a ride to my car, but um, I'm a woman, so Billy Graham rule. And oh, I'm like pencil, and I'm dangerous, you know? And so this kind of thinking um, I found all over the place. I'm like, oh, another reason why that <laughs> women aren't able to enter into the kind of theological heart of the church in a lot of ways um, is because of this whole stigma that we're dangerous. <laughs> and so I, I wrote, why can't we be friends? Um, and I, you know, really capitalizing on that brother or sister language and scripture. Yeah. Some of that's and, not uh, your fault though, or, or women, the fault of women. That's just our culture right now. I mean, like you've got oh, yeah. this culture that wants to pounce on people for anything. Like I, so I remember, many layers to it. Yeah. I remember hey. reading Billy wouldn't even he, like, what was the incident where he had a dinner with his daughter who was full grown and like mm-hmm. something happened where it came out that Billy Graham was eating with, you know, having dinner with, uh, with it's another woman I know. and you know, it almost like he was like, Oh, never again. So we have an opportunity mm-hmm. today to talk to you, Mark, who have spent 28 years in Japan. Can you, what is, what are the gender issues going on since you're over so many church in Tokyo? I mean, what, what do you say to this conversation? Well, I find it's really interesting because for the past 15 years, we've been doing church planning in Tokyo. That's been our focus. So everything's zero to one. So we kind of set the pace and do what we need to do. Mm. But uh, for the past two years, 
we've been able to re-engage the local churches, especially the local Baptist churches, because we're part of the Baptist mission. But when we started to re-engage these local churches and try to be more involved with them, the feedback I got back, uh, back from some of these churches is, you don't believe in women pastors. You all have a statement that says we do not appoint uh, women to be the senior pastors of churches, so we can't work with you. It's a deal breaker. Mm. And my, my, my thought was, I was, I was a bit in shock. I understood where they were coming from, and, and they said, that's what you believe, right? That's your statement. I said, yes, ma'am, it, that, that's exactly right. Um, but uh, my thought was, like the title of your book, why can't we just be friends? <laughs> why can't we have another conversation and, and uh, you know, move forward in this? Why does this have to be a deal breaker? Um, and um, so I've been having those conversations, been working with the different uh, Baptists in Tokyo and, and throughout Japan and trying to have these conversations. But for some of the folks, um, it's a deal breaker for them that we will not allow uh, women to be senior pastors. And there is mm-hmm. a, a pastoral ish, uh, uh, challenge in Japan right now. Uh, n- mm-hmm. Very, very few pastors, and the pastors we do have are over 65, and it's, it's pretty critical. And um, so anyway, that's, that is a challenge that we face in Tokyo that's that recently have really been faced with that. So the, the ones yeah, that are... Yeah, we see that a lot here, too, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, we're willing to come together with people with, like, first-order doctrinal issues, which affect orthodoxy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which align with the creed that the church has historically confessed, um, as long as they hold to a complementarian view on leadership, which is blows my mind, because I've learned a lot from my egalitarian friends, um, and, and we agree on first-order doctrinal issues. Um, right. You know, it might affect the way we worship, and what church we go to, what you believe about women's ordination, but... Um, Many of my egalitarian friends, or many I've read from, uphold the authority of Scripture and have really good teaching. Right. Well, we've had friends who um, have left the church over issues like this, and uh, it's it's sad. Like you were saying, I mean, like you know, is it a first order issue, or is it you know, is this a tertiary thing or whatever? But you know, I mean, like uh, it's it's sad whenever you know you've got someone who has. Uh, you know, a, a dear friend who leaves the church because she just not only does she feel like she's lost a role or a, a position or there is no place for her really to to thrive, but she also feels like it's like overwhelmingly oppressive. And um, mm-hmm. that's that's one reason why I want to start having some of these conversations because I mean, some of okay. what you're talking about brings it back to the center because and this like i said earlier this is like the point where we could start to jump the shark because right there's so much crazy kind of attitudes and philosophies and ideas about what it is to be a man and a woman now so much Mm -hmm. so that i mean there's just i don't is is it like that in japan yes where where you've got men claiming to be women on a especially young men uh the younger generation 20 something males you can't tell who's who (laughs) it's getting blurry here by the moment Uh, Mm. now how long has it been like that in japan you've been there for quite a while i've been there for 28 years and i would say the last 10 years it has really picked up especially within the last five years even 
but the feminization of men in Japan is rampant right now. Wow. Which kind of also, I mean, it's got a direct correlation to what it is that, that, that we're all talking about and what you're writing about, because what's, what well, I know, like a lot of radical feminists, if I can use that word, um, <clears throat> are taking this uh, transgender activism to uh, to task by because they're these uh, these people are essentially erasing what it means to to be a woman, uh, and mm-hmm. it's, they're they're taking that out of the out of out of the playbook and rewriting it to say, you know, well, as long as you identify in a certain way, then you can, then you can be a woman. Right. And, uh, and it's, it kind of, you know, we, we thought we had a lot to deal with just with this issue, you know, (laughs) well, I just want to get, I think your work is so good to start the conversation because there's things that we can't talk about deeply like the issue of humility. So I, I did a lot of work on the issue of humility. Well, the reason that word doesn't get brought up anymore is because it's been abused. It's been abused mm. because they say things like they'll you that we've used it before, not even 50 years ago as a way of submitting. You will learn more by submitting, right? You will mm. learn more by being humble, but that got really charged up and partnered with this idea of being an authority over you, and they used it as a power issue. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I can't, I have to yeah. think about those things when I talk about the issue of humility, knowing that it's been used and abused. And mm-hmm. I want to talk about the way the Bible talks about humility, which is the first right. starting point for all education. Like you can't really understand the world unless you first and foremost start with the fear of the Lord, which is awe and humility. And that awe and humility has to be even in my relationship with my wife. But humility is not an abusive thing. It's a realizing who I am in light of this wonderful person I'm in relationship. My wife is a physician. She makes more money than me, right? She's taller than me. She's prettier than me. I mean, she's smarter than me. I mean, every you know, I, I'd rather her walk in a room before me. It, it does me better for reputation for me to have her walk through a room and not me five foot eight balding guy, right? right? But we've, we've lived... Uh, me and my wife have lived 25 20 something years of of this issue really getting in the in the way of us learning how to be with each other and how to function in the world when she was starting when we were in when we were in college together she decided she wanted to go to med school our junior year she went and searched out every woman physician she could find in the state cuz she wanted to know what are the what are the what's the upsides and the negatives of being a woman in this field um, yeah. And she couldn't find one woman physician that would tell her what it would be like when you first have your kids and you're a medical doctor. Because yeah. it, it was what, what Holly will tell you is it's almost like they were afraid. No, no, no. You have to go into the field of medicine. You're a woman. Mm-hmm. You're do it. You're smart. Mm. You know, she had the big scholarship at Alabama. Everything was paid for. You got this this acceptance to UAB. Go for it, mm-hmm. woman. Be woman. Be the woman everybody wants. You know what I'm saying? But nobody would right. sit back and say, but here is the cost of what right. it will be to do these things. Mm-hmm. So you have that. And then when we went into medical school and went to our little parties, everybody would look at me and ask me what year I was. Not Holly, but me. <laughs> right? And you have a guy like me who's sitting there going, no, 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 it's not me. You don't want me, you don't want me doing it. But we would do that in church too, right? They would come to church right. and say, oh, so you're the doctor. No, that's her. 
And all of a sudden, I'm getting a look, right? And I'm like, is there something wrong with me that my wife's a physician, right? And then guess what happened after that? I became the stay-at-home dad for four years. Now you really got looks when you've gone through seminary, and now you've graduated seminary, and you're the one who decided to be a stay-at-home dad for four years while your wife is making mm-hmm. good money. I mean, we mm-hmm. understand, but nobody wants to have those conversations, even though in my life, right. me and Holly are having those conversations all the time, but we wanted to be in mm-hmm. a community that's helping us make those decisions, but they didn't know what to do with us. And we never yeah. used it as a, look, we're the progressive group. No, my wife will tell you first and foremost, she learns a lot from me and I learn a lot from her. Um, right. but, but I lead in ways that God has given me skill sets and she leads in ways that God's given. Listen, you don't want me to do anything with money. My wife okay. can make a penny into a pound. Right. <laughs> me, I'm the, I'm, I'm the other. Do you see what I'm saying? Though? We're, we're, because we're not having these conversations, it's limiting in us in other conversations in church, like deeper conversations. Right. So, right. And, I know. We can't get past it. And I mean, I get emails like that from people all the time. A lot of, a lot of time, uh, both women and men. And, and women will say, you know, I have to frame like my job at, at my church. I have to frame it as if, Oh, it's just a job that I'm doing to help my pay for my son's college as supplemental money instead of like saying that she has a career that she sure. actually enjoys and feels like she has a contribution to society and in her home. So, um, yeah, I understand where you're coming from well, there. It's in order of attach manhood and womanhood too. Sure. And in order for us to have wisdom-like conversations that make wisdom choices, we have to have a community of believers that helps us through those things. And we're blind right. to it. And we're blind to it. We're just at... Yeah, you ha- I mean, that's, that's a, a huge illustration I give in, in my next book is um, I kind of refer back to this, um, this novella written in the 19th century called The Yellow Wallpaper. And, um, and I, I'm kind of using that illustration as peeling... I'm trying to peel back the yellow wallpaper, which is something that we just don't even see around us in the church um, and seeing you know, what it reveals something so much more beautiful, but it's just like being clutter blind. I think you can be that way in whatever circles you're in. Sure. Um, when you're clutter blind, you know, you have all the stuff in your house that you don't even realize is there anymore. <laughs> you're just used to seeing it, right? And I think that we've handed down some secular teaching on men and women um, that we're blind to in a lot of ways. There's blind spots. Yeah. Well, uh, there was one other thing right before we, we jump off this podcast that I wanted to get your perspective on, and um, that was the Revoice Conference, because I listened to you guys talk about that a little bit, and this has been a little bit of a controversial subject with mm-hmm. with people at this, you know, what you guys, and there was one thing in particular that, that you guys said at the beginning of that that discussion that and I think you might have it might have come off of your lips but this idea that revoice had uh, good intentions but bad results and I just real you know, relatively quickly I mean mm-hmm. what 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 do you think the bad results would be of revoice coming in and doing you know what what are the good intentions and and um, how it seems like that plays into what we're talking about right. gender roles right well yeah the, the good intentions are that there are many struggling in the church with sexual sin and temptation and um you know both 
heterosexually and, and homosexually as well. And the problem is we spend a lot of time talking about heterosexual temptation um, and, and counseling for that. And there's so many hurting people who don't feel like they can share what their temptations are um, if, if they're homosexual temptations. Um, and, you know, if they also, if they don't feel like they fit in the box of what a man is supposed to, to embody, you know, stereotypically, um, and what he's supposed to be doing, um, so, or a woman, vice versa. Yeah. And so I think that those are things that need to be addressed. And I think a lot of the questions that were being addressed in Revoice were, are really important questions that the church is, needs to be challenged to, to talk about. Now, there's a wide range of people involved in, in Revoice. Um, some of some of it's been helpful conversations, and then there's, there's been, um, you know, some of the results, I think, well, I disagree with within that movement now of, uh, you know, identifying as, as a gay Christian. Yeah, um, yeah, that's where, that's where it gets tricky, right? Because this whole, it, it is literally a conversation, <laughs> And yeah, so and we don't we, we don't need to like you know make any rash to shit you know decisions about things and we also we we ever I don't I don't know of a single Christian that doesn't want to be sympathetic towards someone who is struggling with with uh you know same sex attraction or homosexuality or whatever it is you know but the problem is is that you know whenever you label that as a sin then that that's that's where that's where the heat gets in the discussion. And um, mm-hmm. it seems to be, you know, the thing that, you know, I know I, I as a Christian, I don't want to, I don't want to let go of, uh, of those basic biblical mandates. But um, here we right. go talking about something that could probably be its own podcast, but it was oh, on my yeah. list There's... and I wanted to, I, I wanted to hit all the bullet points on my list. <laughs> well, when does your book, when does your book come out? Uh, spring 2020. Okay. All right. And are you going to go on any kind of speaking tour or anything with your book? Do you Um, do any? Yeah, I mean, I I, I have speaking engagements lined up already, and and I probably will do some more around when the book's coming out and more podcasts and things like that as well. But um, I'm really looking forward to it. I went to Beeson, and that's that they have these discussions all the time because it's a divinity school. It doesn't, or, you know, not towards ordination. So I was around women that were going to be in ministry positions so this is a discussion that they they have a lot so if you find your uh-huh. way in the birmingham area you know maybe we can make a nice you know weekend out of it in terms of discussion so. <laughs> okay i'll let you know all right well thank you so much for coming on thanks for having me it was a pleasure yeah we hope we can do it again and we're going to be uh uh, we'd love to have you on more to talk about this issue. There's so much that can be talked about. But yeah, we, certainly. We love your work, and we thank you so much for what you do. Yeah, thanks for letting me share it. All right.